Well, good morning. How's everyone? Beautiful morning. Great fall day. Well, it's not fall technically, but you realize that uh, Tuesday is the National Register to Vote Day. So if you're not registered to vote, Tuesday is a great day to do it. And um, as citizens of this country and uh, believers in Jesus Christ, uh, it's incumbent upon us to uh, exercise that right. And uh, so if you're not registered, please do so. And then um, vote, vote biblical values this fall in the midterm election that's coming up. Um, if you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. Glad you're here. And watching online as well and down on F3, glad you're there. Um, we have uh, started a study on the book of uh, Acts. And last week, uh, Tim went a little bit into the, the character of the person who wrote the book, Dr. Luke. And this morning, and actually next week as well, I want to... I want to fly this plane at about a 35,000 foot level and, and give uh, a bit of a, a, a context, a biblical context to the book. Before we jump into the verse one of the book of Acts, just to fly this plane a little higher. And um, uh, it, it, this will be review, I think, for many of you, but uh, we're going to fly through some things in the Old Testament. Uh, but I want to put Acts in a biblical context this morning. Um, so let's do that. Um, and we'll start at the beginning, which is uh, the book of beginnings, which is the book of what? Genesis. And in Genesis uh, 1, we see that God creates a, a perfect world. It starts with perfection. God saw that all he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God created perfection. That's how the Bible ends. Well, guess how the Bible ends? Well, with perfection again. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. A new heaven and a new earth. Perfection. The Bible starts with perfection. It ends with perfection. Now, the problem is everything in between, because everything in between is a mess because of sin. Something happened to mess up God's perfected world that he had created, man's rebellion, man's sin. And in between the perfection of the beginning and the perfection of the end, you can put all of man's woes and troubles, all, all of man's wars and inhumanity against inhumanity, all the debauchery, all the brutalization, all the disease and sickness and sinfulness of the world, all of that fits in between Genesis 1 and the perfection of God's world that he created and the end of the Bible, the perfection of God that he's going to recreate. Um, but there's another storyline that is woven in the midst of all the the, the sinfulness and the mess that is in between those two beginnings and that ending. There's another storyline and a golden thread of, of God's plan and God's heart to redeem this, this sinful world back to himself, to get it back to perfection. This golden thread of God's grace and mercy, his, his redemptive plan to put everything back together again. To make it right, to reassert his 
rightful rule over his fallen world, his sinful creation. To that end, the Bible is directed to. The very last chapter then, again, we go to Revelation, and it says there will then be no longer any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That's the plan. God is going to get us there. But how is he going to get us there? Now, you can, and I don't want to oversimplify this, but I will attempt to oversimplify it. You can understand the whole Bible centered around two promises of God, and they're both found in the book of Genesis. Understand these two promises, you've kind of got the whole Bible uh, understood and figured out. Here's the first promise. It's in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God commanded the man and said, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, here's the promise, you will surely die. God says, if you disobey me, I'm giving you one little simple command. Everything of this garden you can eat freely. God was gracious and abundantly so. They said, there's one tree you cannot eat. And he says, I promise you, if you disobey me, you will die. And of course, death means more than just, you know, your heart stops pumping. This concept of death, this, this, it's, a, it's a deep, rich theological concept of, of being separated from all that is life, from all that emanates and is sourced from God. It, it means death, separation from oneself, a, a psychological death, a, a relational death, separation from one another. Ultimately, yes, separation from God himself, separation our soul from our bodies, that physical death. But God had just said, I promise you, if you, if you disobey me, death will come. Death will come. And along with death came God's certain judgment. Um, in chapter 3, he gives these judgments. And he says in chapter 3, verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Well, cursed is the ground because of you. And in toil, it's the same word, pain, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Pain. Disobey me, there will be death. It'll be expressed and lived out in pain while your heart is still beating and you're still upright in this now fallen, sin-cursed world, you will experience pain. He said, I promise you, if you eat of the fruit, if you disobey me, death will come, and with it, judgment. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme in Romans chapter 8 when he said this, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Futility, corruption, slavery, pain. Those are all concepts that, uh, again, are rich in meaning, but it describes 
What's going on between the perfection that God originally created, the perfect world that is going to come, but it's describing everything in between. The uh, preacher Koheleth of the book of Ecclesiastes described it as vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Futility, futility, all is futility. In other words, we can't figure out this fallen mess that we're living in. You read the paper, you listen to the news, you, 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 you scratch your head and you wonder, what, what is going on? This is nonsensical. Right. That's part of death. Nothing makes sense. Good people die young. Bad people live to a ripe old age. Figure it out. I mean, we, we can't make sense because of the futility of life. Sin has turned everything upside down. It's been frustrated. Remember the um, C.S. Lewis's line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, the, the white witch who had put Narnia in a state of perpetual winter? Spring never came. Well, we are in a state of perpetual death in this world. That's what we're living in right now. Every aspect of God's creation, from the tiniest subatomic sub particle to the to the largest expansive galaxies. Everything has been turned upside down because of sin. Everything has been corrupted because of sin. Death reigns. Life is fleeting and transitory. It's futility. There's an absurdity to life, and we can't make sense out of it. And why? <clears throat> because God promised, eat of the forbidden fruit, I promise you, death comes. That's the first promise. But there's a second promise. If we can understand the second promise, it gives us hope. It's there also in Genesis, and in Genesis chapter 3. He says this to the woman. He said, I will put enmity between you, or to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Now here it is. He will crush your head. He will deliver a brutal, final, crushing blow, though you will strike his heel. He will crush your head. And in that little statement, it's the first prophetic statement that begins this, this golden thread of hope, this promise that is woven in the rest of the Bible. This hope that there is going to come a he. It's a, it, 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 somebody, some, someone is coming who will deal with Satan in a crushing blow and be the means by which God is going to reassert his rightful rule on this earth again and put everything back together. It's just that little hint. He is coming and is going to be the head crusher who will reclaim God's glory in this earth when he does. Of course, the question now is, who is the he? Who is this? <clears throat> if we were reading the Bible for the very first time, and you're reading through this, and you come to that little phrase in Genesis chapter 3, you would lean forward as you're reading this and think, he, who, he's going to be the head crusher 
who is he? When is he coming? What, when's this hope going to be materialized? Well, God's plan of reclaiming his rebellious creation gets a little clearer down the road in Genesis chapter 12 because in that story, God called a man who was a pagan, a, a worshiper of the moon god, from the land of the Chaldeans, of the city of Ur, and his name was Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and he says, and you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The thread of, that golden thread of hope again. In you, all the, is Abraham going to be the head crusher? Is he the one? Did God raise up this pagan moon worshiper from the city of Ur, the Chaldees, to be that one? No. But he's narrowing it down. It's going to be through the lineage of Abraham. You know, as the Old Testament continues in the book of Genesis, Abraham and his wife Sarah were elderly. They had no children. In fact, they were past the age of bearing children. God, how are you going to work this out? How, how am I going to be the hope for the world? I have no children. And God says, well, I'm going to work a miracle. In your old age, your wife Sarah is going to give birth to a son. And of course, remember the story? Sarah heard that and she starts chuckling, laughing like, how, how can I, my old age? And of course, God heard that and he says, no, you will. Next year, at this time, you're going to have a little baby boy. In fact, I'm, you know what his name's going to be? Yitzhak, Isaac, which means laughter. You laugh, I'll give you something to laugh about. You're going to have a little baby boy. And sure enough, was Isaac the promised one that came? Was he the, the coming head crusher? Was he the, the he? No. But it gets narrowed a little bit more. Isaac had two sons, right? Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older, but God said, no, the older is going to serve the younger. My promise is going to come now through Jacob, and he narrows it down a little bit more. Was Jacob the promised he? course not i mean he was a he was a cheat and a liar stole the birthright from his brother but it gets narrowed down a little bit more now jacob had 12 sons they also had one daughter by the way who do you know the name of the daughter dinah right very good the bible walkthrough coming back here dinah but the 12 sons and we come to the end of the book of genesis genesis 49 and God narrows it down to those 12 sons, and he says this in verse 10 of 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the tribe of Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the people. Um, it, it, it's it's translated, if you have an NIV, it's translated in the NIV as until he comes to whom it belongs. This, this coming he, to whom it belongs, the scepter, the, the ruling power. There is someone coming, and now God has narrowed it even more, and he says it's going to be through this, this tribe of Judah. The scepter will not depart. The promised deliverer would be coming. The powerful head crusher 
who's going to reassert God's rightful rule over this fallen, messed up world to bring it back to the perfection that we see at the end of the Bible. He's coming. And the book of Genesis ends with this, this um, patriarch Jacob dying in Egypt with his 12 sons. And, and then for the next 400 years, the pages of Scripture kind of go silent until you go to the book of Exodus. Now I realize we've got a long way to go and you're thinking, are we going to get out of here by lunchtime? But in Exodus, we find out that Jacob's family in Egypt has now multiplied their millions and their slaves in Egypt. And yet God, God pulls them out into a unique relationship with himself. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. That is, you're totally separate from all the nations on the planet. You are special. You are holy the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And God's plan was that through this nation, he would bring forth his righteous rule. He would bring blessing and glory. All the families of the earth would be blessed. And he was going to use the tool of this nation to do it. And he raised up a great deliverer by the name of Moses to bring that about. Was Moses the coming head crusher? Would God use Moses through the nation of Israel to bring about his eternal plan and of redemption, to bring about the perfection that he'd planned? No, but he did say in Deuteronomy chapter 18, there will be a prophet like you that will rise. It wasn't Moses. There was still a coming he. And all Israel had to do to be that conduit of God's Redemptive, uh, um, redemptive tool to, be, uh, to fulfill his plan to bring the world back into order and wholeness again. All they have to do is obey him. He gave them a law. He said, obey my law. Deuteronomy 28. We won't take that time to turn there, but if you, if you want to understand the Old Testament, all you have to do is read Deuteronomy 28. Because Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 says this, if you obey these laws I'm giving you today, then all these blessings will come. You will be blessed, 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 blessed. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the world. But then in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, it changes and he says, but if you don't obey these laws, all these curses will come upon you. Cursed you will be. Curse, 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 curse. In Deuteronomy 30, God says, look, I'm sending before you life and death. Choose life. Obey and be blessed. Disobey? Well, it's just what he had told Adam. I promise you, if you disobey, cursing will come. And sadly, what we see in the Old Testament is that this special people that God was going to use as a conduit to bring blessing and a light to this world they chose the second half of Deuteronomy 28, and they disobeyed God time and time and time again. And that's the story of the Old Testament. One failure after another, after another, after another. And yet, amazingly, through those pages of the Old Testament, this golden thread of, of God's heart of redemption, of, 
of God's heart of grace pops up. It just shows up. Like when David was king. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, he tells David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And now all of a sudden, the narrowing of this coming he gets even closer and closer to the target. David was from the tribe of Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah. And now God is saying, David, through your lineage, through your family, the throne will be forever. I will reassert my righteous rule on this world. I'll put everything back to wholeness again through your family, through your seed. The great coming deliverer was to come through the tribe of Judah, through the family, the lineage of David. But true to their ways, David died. King Solomon, his son, rose, asked for wisdom. God gave him wisdom more than any other person on the face of the earth, and he squandered it. He walked away from God, Solomon did, and when he dies, this, this nation of Israel erupts in civil war, sin and death again, rebellion, the high hand of rebellion against God. The ten northern tribes take off. They split from the two southern tribes of, of Benjamin and Judah. And over the next century and a little bit more, those nations, those tribes, those ten northern tribes called Israel but to the north, not one godly king reigned. Everyone turned their back from God. Time and time and time again, they, they worshiped other gods and bowed down before idols. They did horrible things. And finally in the 8th century, 722 B.C., God's patience came to an end. And the Assyrians came from the north, and they took those ten tribes, and they took them away and obliterated them. Now, the two southern tribes, there was still hope, because Judah was one of those. The promised he, deliverer, was going to come from the tribe of Judah through the lineage of David. And they survived a little bit longer because of all their kings. There were two of them that had halfway a heart for God, and yet judgment fell upon them because they also had turned away from God. And in 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire comes. And God said, enough, enough. I promise you, if you disobey me, you will die. And death came to the nation of Israel. Now, of course, that's where the prophets come in. God raised up these spokesmen, these, these servants of God, the prophets in the Old Testament, to proclaim these warnings to Israel, to call Israelites back to a relationship with himself. Behold, God's hand of judgment is going to fall Return to the Lord. And time and time again, God raised up these prophets, but they were not heard. It's recorded in 2 Chronicles 36 that the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. 
and judgment fell. And yet, you have this end of the nation of Israel, this special people through whom God was going to bless the world. Yet, there's this golden thread of, of hope that continues to get woven in the scriptures. It's like God's plan is not thwarted. So you read Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourgings we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The head crusher. This promise of this coming one. This one who's going to be the great deliverer. The promise is still being woven into the scriptures. Jeremiah 31 put it this way. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law within them. On their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Are you kidding me? The Babylonians have been knocking on the door. They're gone. I mean, it's, Israel is over. But there's this thread of hope. No, no. Days are coming. And I'm going to make a new agreement. Habakkuk, in a very simple verse, put it this way in Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The day is coming, God said through Habakkuk. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. But when? How is this going to take place? It just, it just doesn't look like it's even possible. When is this head crusher going to come and fulfill his promises? When, when is the great he going to arise and, and bring about that total redemptive program of God to put everything back together again? So we move to the place of perfection again. When is he coming? When is this going to happen? The very last prophet that is recorded in our Old Testament, Malachi, there's again this promise of hope. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Hope. God is patient. And the Old Testament ends with that note of hope. The, the golden thread of, of God's redemptive plan woven throughout all the Old Testament beginning in that very first prophetic promise. He will come and deal the crushing final blow to the evil. But when? If the Old Testament teaches us anything, it teaches us that there is a sovereign God who is not in a rush, 
A thousand years is like a day to him. But he's unfolding a plan to redeem and restore and reassert his glory, his righteous rule on this earth once again. That's what the Old Testament prophets were talking about. There is a day coming when God will come back in this earth and he'll right every wrong. The lion will lie down with the lamb. There will be peace and shalom. There will be wholeness again on this earth when he comes, the great king who will sit on the throne of David, the perpetual king, and he'll make everything right again. But a prophetic voice was going to be heard. Elijah, or one like Elijah, 400 years passed after Malachi wrote those words. There's silence. And then the sound of a cry of a baby boy. John the Baptist is born. And in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, John the Baptist became the voice crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Mark records it in Mark chapter 1, verse 7. He was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's coming. And amazingly, a few days after he said that, a few weeks after he said that, as he was there in the Jordan River doing his baptism in the water, all of a sudden he picked his head up and then he said, look, there he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. And the, dove, the heavens opened up and a dove came upon his cousin, Jesus. The one that Gabriel, the angel, had come to his mother, Mary, and said, you're going to have this child, this baby boy, and he will be the one who will sit on the throne of his father, David. He is the coming Messiah. Jesus went about for the next three years proclaiming his Messiahship. With convincing proofs, he showed that he was this coming head crusher the one that God had promised. He fulfilled every scripture that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. He was the one. He was the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And so you can imagine the shock and horror that must have come to his disciples and his followers when Jesus said this, as recorded in Luke 18. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Oh, good. We're waiting. It's time. We're waiting for that to happen. We want the kingdom to come. But then he said, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. The meaning of the statement was hidden from them. They did not comprehend the things 
that were said. The Messiah, the great he, the promised one, was going to die. And true to his word, he did. He was crucified on the cross like a Roman criminal, the most horrific death that could be imagined. But it was all part of God's wonderful, redemptive plan of the ages. Remember what Isaiah the prophet had said? He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Central to God's unfolding plan of these ages, the world starts with the perfection of Eden. It'll end one day in the perfection of a new heaven and new earth. But all this mess in between, there was something that had to be done so that we can get to the glory at the end. And that is sin had to be dealt with. Our sin had to be dealt with. Our transgressions. Everyone born in this world was born in sin, the Bible says, right? The wages of sin is death. And we all deserve to be separated from God. The mess and the muck and the awfulness of this world is all deserved. Why people get mad at God, God had warned us. I promise you, if you disobey me, if you sin, death will come. That's what we've experienced. But there's hope. And God said, I'm going to provide a payment for the sin of the world. And Jesus left his throne in glory and he came down to earth. He became fully humanity, in, totally embraced humanity. He was fully God, but fully man. So that he could identify fully with, with, the, with the sin-sick world, the pain, the suffering, all of this in this world that is a result of rebellion against God. And he went to a cross because God the Father required a payment for sin. And Jesus said, I'll make that payment. I will be the substitute. I will become fully man so I can identify fully with humanity and I will pay for the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist was saying. Look, there he is, the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is our hope. And Jesus died on the cross and he paid for our sins. Folks, every one of your sins have been paid for because of Jesus. Even the ones you're going to commit 10 years from now. Can you imagine that? Every sin that has ever been committed has been paid for by the shed blood of Jesus 2,000 years ago. So that he can now offer a free gift of eternal life. Well, how can a dead man offer a free gift? Well, of course, you know the story. Three days later, he didn't stay dead. He pulled off the greatest miracle there was. He rose from the dead. That's historical fact. It's an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. He rose from the dead just like he said he was going to do. In fact, he came to his disciples in Luke chapter 24 and he said, why are you troubled? Why, why, why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, my feet? It's I myself. Touch me, see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I'm alive. And this resurrected Jesus offers anyone the free gift of eternal life for simply believing in him. Simple faith in Christ, just trusting that he said that he did what he said he was going to do, pay for our sins. 
And if we put our trust in Christ, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him doesn't get righteous, doesn't get religious, doesn't pay so much money to the poor, doesn't obey the Ten Commandments. But he who believes in me, he says, has everlasting life. It's a free gift at that moment. And that work was accomplished by Jesus. He rises from the dead. See my hands. You can look through the nail holes and the prints in his hands. I'm alive. Victory had come. The head crusher was alive. Now it's all going to be brought together again. The disciples must have been euphoric. Now do we march to Rome? Do you stick your hand in the face of Caesar, look at him through the little hole in your hand, and poof, vaporize him in a moment, take over the world, put everything back together again? Well, not quite. Now, there was excitement because for 40 days, that's exactly what Jesus taught. And we'll see that when we get into the Acts chapter 1 in the opening verses. After Jesus is raised from the dead, for 40 days, he's teaching his disciples about this coming kingdom where he'll reign supreme, just like the Old Testament prophets had prophesied. He was coming to reign supreme, to set everything right, to end the mess of sin and rebellion and bring in that new heaven and new earth. For 40 days, he's telling his disciples this. It was so convincing that, as we'll see in verse 6 of chapter 1, Peter says, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Sit on the throne of your father David? Is, is, is it going to happen now? And of course, they were excited because Jesus had promised that they, could, they were going to reign with him and judge the 12 tribes of Israel and have positions of honor. And you know, That's kind of a you know, mind-blowing experience. Is it now this is going to happen? Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times of the epochs that the Father has set. But he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to start in Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and then I want you to go to the uttermost part of the world and proclaim who I am. Go therefore, he said, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded. And be my witnesses wherever you are. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost, remotest part of the earth. You see, God's plan for redeeming this world back to himself was beginning to take on something new, a different twist. It's something mysterious. In fact, that's the term the Apostle Paul used. Now, you've been sitting there nicely looking at me, but for the next couple of minutes, and I'm way out of time, but that's okay. Um, turn with me to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. And Paul writes this to the Gentiles who are outside, we're not Israel. Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you, you Gentiles, were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and you were without God in the world. In other words, 
you were aliens, estranged from the Old Testament work that God had done through Israel. But now. Mark that little word now. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly are far off, were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he goes on to explain that they are being built, verse 20, on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, that Christ Jesus is the cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fit together and growing into a holy temple unto the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Something new now, says Paul, has begun. Look at the next chapter, chapter 3. For this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the Father. And he begins this prayer, and then he gets separated from that prayer. If indeed, verse 2, you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. A mystery. Mystery is something that was in God's heart and mind, but had never previously been revealed. But it is now being revealed. Verse 4, referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And to be specific, here it is, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, which I was made a minister. Paul is saying something new has happened. Something new has begun. Look at verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the church, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul is simply saying there's something new happening now. And it's called this new community, this new gathering of people. He calls it the body, the body of Christ. The church, the, the Greek word ekklesia, the called out ones. Something new that brings people from every walk of life, every culture, every ethnic background, every tribe, nation coming together under the banner of Jesus Christ as Savior, bringing them together into something new, the church of Jesus Christ for the purpose of proclaiming the glory of God into the world. Be my witnesses. And start in your Jerusalem, your Judea and Samaria, and go to the uttermost part of the world. A new phase in God's plan was beginning. And that's where the book of Acts fits in. Because the book of Acts tells the beginning story of the beginning of this new phase of God's plan. This transition from the old to the new. The transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament and the beginning of a new phase of God's plan as he raises up a new community, a new people of God for the purpose of proclaiming light into darkness. Proclaiming the excellencies of Christ into a darkened world. I'm raising you up. Be my witnesses to the world and proclaim the good news. God is going to put everything back together again. And you see, the message of the book of Acts tells us that that gospel good news message ultimately will triumph. It wins. 
as you see as we'll go through the book of Acts, story after story, the power and the wonder of God fulfilling his plan of the ages through this new entity called the church, the body of Christ. The coming of Christ was just the beginning. He told uh, at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, I wrote the first account, Luke says, about all that Jesus began to do. Now I'm writing a second volume, volume 2, the book of Acts. And the implication is, now I'm going to tell you all that Jesus continued to do. And the final word is, the gospel triumphs. It works. Now I started this message with this quote from the book of Revelation 21, verse 1 and 2. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God that's made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. But it continues. In verse 3 and 4, it says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because those first things have passed away. And that's where ultimately we get to go. We're getting there. We'll get there as sure as we're sitting here because as the book of Acts will tell us, the gospel ultimately triumphs. But the book of Acts also tells us how it triumphs. It's God using his people, and we're going to talk about this next week, that have been indwelled by his very presence, something that did happen in the Old Testament, something in this new community that takes place. We find, we'll read about it in Acts chapter 2. But there's something that will take place that can ensure the triumph of the gospel in the world. And folks, to the degree we understand it, will be the degree that we will participate in that triumph. And if we don't understand it, we will not participate in that triumphal gospel. The concern that's going on in this world today and the church of Jesus Christ, maybe even in this country, is where is the triumph? I just read an, uh, an article uh, this last week of the uh, the precipitous decline of Christianity in America that by some of the Pew researchers saying by 2045 Christianity will be a minority non-existent player in our cultural scene in America that's happening right before our eyes why because we have forgotten some of the very things that the early church had been putting into practice and to the degree that we go and we study the book of Acts and come and see Lord I, I don't, I, I don't want to be a part of something that's declining. Do you, folks? But, but this is what's happening. Maybe not in places elsewhere in the world, but certainly happening here. And so it is imperative that as we come to the book of Acts to see, okay, God, teach us. What, 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 what do we need to, who do we need to be? What are you calling us to do? What did the early church do and who was, who were they? What, what were they becoming that made the gospel triumph in the midst of darkness. I pray that by God's grace, as we study the book of Acts, he'll lead us into that truth because it's desperately needed today.
A new government is not needed desperately. Jesus, the king, is needed desperately. God, help us that we become like the book of Acts. Father, give us the strength and the, the grace, I pray, Father, to be the people of God that you've raised us and called us up to be. 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has been a, a, a player on the scene for good, for bad. For 2,000 years, this plan of yours has been unfolding. And I can't help but believe, Father, we're at the very end of that plan. And I pray, Father, that we here at Fellowship Bible Church will finish well in that plan. And give us that understanding and give us, Father, a, a fresh vision of what that looks like, the triumph of the gospel as we study through the early church and the book of Acts. For your glory, I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.